Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management Podcast. It's a privilege to be joining you today, and it does feel important as we consider the new environment and the challenges that environment poses regarding investment planning. We're recording this on April 30th. It's a sign of the times we're going through that communicating a recording date feels increasingly important. Today, we're going to begin to look at longer-term ramifications of COVID-19, the way the pandemic has changed our view of the future and altered the boundaries of the investment decision process. We may also consider, to the best of our prognosticating abilities, how many of these changes may be long-lasting or even perhaps permanent. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator. Our guest is Bill O'Grady, Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist. Bill, let's look first at the nature of this event, this pandemic. What can history tell us about the depth of the disruption? The most significant pandemic of the past thousand years was the Black Death. It came in waves starting in the mid-1300s, but returned on numerous occasions all the way into the 17th century. So that disease, bubonic plague, was with our ancestors for a long time. In modern history, infectious disease pandemics tend to be shorter term, but the impact can be severe. So in general, we treat these events as deep in magnitude, but short in duration. How then does this pandemic compare with similar events in the past? There are four that we are using. Uh, The first is the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. The second was the 1957-58 Asian flu. The third is the 1968-69 Hong Kong flu. And the fourth is the 2009 influenza pandemic. All cases faded in about 18 months or less. The impact, on the other hand, varied widely. The 1918 Spanish flu was particularly deadly, killing somewhere between 50 to 100 million people worldwide. But that event was in the pre-antibiotic era, and many of those deaths could have been due to secondary infections. It also occurred after World War I with a widely uh, varying quarantine efforts. And even with all that, it did trigger a recession, but most economic historians ascribe that downturn to post-war demobilization. There is no doubt the pandemic contributed, but it's difficult to separate out the effects. There was a deep recession in 1957-58, but again, economic historians blame overly tight monetary policy for that downturn, and neither the 1968-69 nor the 2009 flu was tied to a recession. One idea worth noting is that societal attitudes toward infectious disease and death have changed over the past century. When the Spanish flu pandemic raged, it was not unusual for children to die before the age of five. Much of the steady rise in life expectancy over the past century has occurred because we have conquered infectious diseases such as measles, diphtheria, cholera, polio, etc., Our society is less tolerant of someone dying from an infectious disease like COVID-19. And so we take more precautions than our grandparents and great-grandparents who accepted such fatalities as normal. At the same time, pandemics burn out when the infection rate falls to less than one. You may have seen the term R-ought or R-naught. And that occurs quickly once herd immunity has been achieved. That happens when about 75 to 80% of the population has been infected and survived. 
Herd immunity happens faster when society allows the virus to circulate, but the cost is much higher fatalities. Bill, you've written and spoken about the what you call the equality efficiency cycle in the past. It's, it's a subject you're revisiting in your weekly geopolitical reports. How does the pandemic fit and perhaps accelerate the trend that was already underway away from efficiency and toward equality in American society? The equality efficiency cycle is something I created. It comes from the combined research of three people, The first is the Nobel laureate economist Arthur Oaken, who suggested that society faces a persistent trade-off between equality and efficiency. Second, Peter Turchin, a mathematical historian who works in the area of cliodynamics, described how inequality tends to cycle over time. And finally, Walter Schneidel, a historian who argued that the dominant trend in capitalist society is for efficiency, and this dominant trend is only disrupted when a catastrophe strikes, mainly mass mobilization war, revolution, a complete breakdown in civil order, and pandemic. We have been warning that inequality has been rising to very high levels. The rise of populism, both on the left and right, is a sign that it will be hard to sustain the trend towards greater inequality. But Schneidel warns us that it will take an event to reverse this natural trend towards inequality. A pandemic may be just such an event. Do you agree that increased recognition and pay for the American workers who are currently lower paid, do you think increased pay for them might be one result of this trend? It's certainly possible. But for that to occur, you need to reduce competition for that labor. Reversing globalization is one way to address that issue. Globalization includes not just reducing imports, but immigration as well. Unionization flourishes under conditions where labor supply is limited. Another way of thinking about this is profit margins have been elevated since the turn of the century. We could see a shift in national income away from capital and towards labor. How might an increase in resources for lower paid workers play out in the investment world? It would not be favorable, but not necessarily a major problem. Some industries might actually benefit. Retailers, for example, might see stronger sales as income rises for lower income households. Financial firms might find borrowing demand decline, which would be negative for them. But in general, a shift of income from capital to labor would tend to be negative for investors. Let's touch on investment behavior for a moment. Baby boomers are used to hearing and to a great extent obeying the maxim to stay invested in stocks through thick and thin. In light of the events they have experienced, will young people today continue to observe this maxim? The oldest baby boomer was 20 in 1966. He came of age in one of the longest economic expansions. The worst economic experience of his young life was the 1970s inflation. Boomers thus are very attuned to inflation. But he was also 35 when the greatest equity bull market in history began. And for nearly their entire lives, housing for baby boomers was a solid investment. Contrast that situation with the oldest millennial. He turned 19 when the tech bubble burst, was 25 when the housing market peaked, was 28 when the great financial crisis hit, and is now 39 when the great pandemic recession occurred. 
The millennial missed out on most of the 1982 to 2000 bull market and probably didn't participate in much of the last bull market. Thus, we would should expect this generation to be more cautious and less inclined to have large equity exposures. If that turns out to be the case, how might this impact what we have come to recognize as investment rules? We have been living through four decades of low inflation, falling interest rates, and corporate governance bias towards capital. That is a set of conditions that is favorable towards stocks and supports passive investment in stocks. We are now in a period where labor will likely gain power over capital, and eventually, although I want to stress this will take a long time, inflation will return. It would not be a huge surprise to see equity markets become more volatile and thus active investment gain favor again. Let's talk about private sector debt, uh, which uh, is a subject certainly in the news. Uh, The Fed has been uh, active in this area, acquiring much of it or more of it. Has, uh, Has private sector debt become unsustainable? Well, first, let's define it. Uh, We define private sector debt as the combination of household debt and non-financial corporate debt. We purposely exclude financial sector debt because it is usually part of debt within its own sector and thus is susceptible to double counting. Determining the sustainability of debt is more of an art than a science. Historical comparisons are not all that useful because some borrowers will always pay while others default with little stress. And conditions matter. What is sustainable under some circumstances becomes unsustainable in others. But this much we can say. Leverage introduces the problem of fragility. In other words, the more debt an entity carries, the less stress it can bear. And thus borrowers with little debt can survive downturns easier than those with lots of it. At the same time, leverage magnifies returns. So during periods of prosperity, there is a temptation to expand leverage. Long expansions paradoxically then exacerbate risk. Hyman Minsky originated the financial instability hypothesis and argued that the longer an expansion extends, the greater the likelihood that lenders and borrowers will become increasingly reckless. And so when the downturn occurs, there will be borrowers who are overleveraged and will default. We believe that non-financial business debt has become excessive. Households, on the other hand, have been deleveraging since the 2008 financial crisis. How are recent Fed actions addressing this issue? The Fed has taken aggressive steps to ensure that borrowers can roll over their debt and remain operable. In some respects, lending is an asset and duration transformation. So, a borrower takes on debt to buy a long-term asset, like a mortgage, to buy a house, is taking a liquid asset like cash and transforming it into an illiquid one, uh, a house. However, the lender may create a mismatch too by funding that loan with short-term borrowing as well. And so, if short-term lending becomes scarce, the lender may be forced to call in the loan and thus create fire sale conditions. What the Fed is doing is working to prevent a funding shortage and thus preserve liquidity and asset values. The rub is that some of the leveraged assets may be tied to firms that are truly insolvent. And if that's the case, the Fed actions may keep a firm alive that should be allowed to fail. This is what we refer to as the moral hazard problem. How would you grade the Fed's action so far? Well, for the rescue portion, I would grade it an A+. But for the moral hazard problem, it's an incomplete. 
What are the long-term implications of the Fed's actions? Addressing private sector debt problem requires one of two solutions. Policymakers either allow the market to work and deal with massive defaults, liquidations, high unemployment, collateral damage, such as bank failures, or they come in and they support asset prices and income. The path of liquidation was the path that the Hoover administration took from 1928 to 1932, and no government intends to take that path again. But the advantage of that path is that asset prices get reset and new buyers can purchase them at a level where future profitability is is likely. We don't do that anymore, and so the adjustment process takes much longer and tends to be less complete. Productivity tends to suffer because weak firms continue to exist due to permissive credit conditions. Eventually, there is a tendency toward greater regulation to prevent another financial problem. The way I like to refer it is that if you close the gates of hell, you must also outlaw sin. Does all of this have the potential to perhaps rewrite asset allocation rules and formulas? If inflation returns, there there are two things that we are recommending to investors. One is bond laddering, where you own a a ladder of security starting in the short term and extending into the duration. And then those are rolled every year as the shorter term asset uh, expires or the shorter term bond expires. And the longer term one is then used to purchase with the asset that has, has liquidated. The other is to own precious metals in the portfolio. Equities will still be a necessary part of portfolios, but returns won't be as good as what we have seen for the past four decades. Thank you, Bill. Next time, we'll look at some of the other factors affected by the reversal of the equality efficiency cycle and propelled by the present pandemic. And one focus will be the potential impact on inflation. Another will be how altered behavior and a changing world outlook might play out in the markets. This has been the Confluence of Ideas, featuring Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. For more resources, we point you to confluenceinvestment.com. You can also find us on Twitter at ConfluenceIM. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We want to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. And this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. 